Welcome to Saving Tomorrow's Planet, the podcast that uh, goes all around the world, finding people who are taking action to save the planet. This is Jeremy Schwartz, uh, the former CEO of The Body Shop and the chairman of Kantar's Sustainability Transformation Practice. Well, we are going to one of the most exciting countries, Borneo now, to speak to a fantastic lady who's heading up a organization called ASRI that is taking really a unique approach to being able to both protect and reforest the incredible rainforests that are in Borneo. I think this is, idea is so unique that it's got a transferability worldwide. And therefore, really, I hope you enjoy what I've learned as much as, um, as I did. Well, let's head off to Borneo. My name is Febri. I'm the executive director of ASRI, Alam Sehat Lestari Foundation in West Borneo, Indonesia. I'm now not in Borneo as I'm right now in Jogja. I have a training here and I'm in a hotel. I need to tell you that I have personally traveled with my family to Borneo, one of the most memorable experiences in our lives. But of course, with all the beauty, all the orangutans, all the jungle, we also also saw the palm oil. And of course, that's been a big picture yes. in my mind about, you know, the impact that palm oil has, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But perhaps it'd be nice just to explain a little bit about your organization ASRI and tell us what that means and what it's about. ASRI is an organization established in 2007. Founder Henry Webb, a doctor from the USA and a dentist from Indonesia. So they've co-founded ASRI and we're working in the forest conservation. I can say a unique approach because we're not only working on the conservation in silo. We see conservation as there are many factors uh, surrounding it, for example, healthcare, education, and also, of course, livelihood. So we usually call our work is in planetary health in action because we believe that human health and environmental health are very interconnected. And that's why we need to work together at the same time to tackle the issues of conservation and also healthcare, as well as livelihood, as well as education. So we are kind of like doing many things. At the same time, we are hoping to get the impact as soon as possible. Great. Well, I'm very passionate about this subject that if we are to protect and to replant or protect native forests, we need to understand that there are people who need to live in those forests and the way they treat them and the way we look after them is a relationship, yeah. which is what I think I'm hearing you saying. One of the first questions I had was, who are the people that are living in the forests that you're talking about? Are these what we might call indigenous people? Describe the people, because I'm interested to know first of all about them. The center of our work is the rainforest community. Who are they? It depends on, at the moment, we work with two communities nearby Gunung Palung National Park and Bukit Baka, Bukit Raya National Park. Some communities, they are, might call indigenous because more traditional community, but some other, like nearby Gunung Palung National Park, we can say local communities, not very traditional, already not so homogeneous. I think their locals living for many generations surrounding the forest. At Asri, we believe that they are the expert. They are the guardians of the forest. So we want to work with them, support them so that they can protect the forest because 
we believe that they want to protect the forest. And if these communities can protect the forest, it means also we protect all inside the forest. Great. Yeah. So let's explore this because I strongly believe and I've met various tribes who have shown to me and explained to me how they have been able to re grow or to re-establish a forest but i must admit sometimes they've told me how you know in order to eat particularly in order to eat they've had to kill the animals and there are less and less animals because there are lots of humans and they are probably eating quicker than the the animals are growing i mean could you explain what your experience is of this their ability to be the protectors but also the you know there is a relationship where the animals can survive with humans are needing to eat what's your experience of that um, sorry, I, I think I need to okay. take um, so, and ask. No, no, that, yeah. That's fine. Let me say it again. Yeah. So obviously the local uh, tribes living in the rainforest are the best guardians of the forest because yeah. it's in their interest. Can yeah. you tell me where you have seen them doing a fantastic job of that, but also perhaps where they need food and they are hunting the animals in the, in the forest and that is a challenge. It depends on the type of the communities as well. Many local communities nearby Gunung Palu National Park, because they are Muslim, people don't really hunt from the forest. But other tribe, for example, Dayaknis, is closer to the nature and also like probably hunt more than the communities in the other part and different tribes different behavior because that's also relate yeah like the religion also matter uh, on the way how people will pick the food that's really interesting you know it's funny that was a question i was going to ask you because having traveled a lot in indonesia uh, clearly we have a muslim community a christian community yes. and probably some other local religions and I was, I was intrigued to know how you have seen that the religious aspect has an impact on the uh, preservation so let me ask you that question what do you observe <laughs> Around that. From what my knowledge and my observation from what I'm hearing, that's really related because, for example, in Muslim communities, I also part of that and, and we don't eat very wildlife. We are more selective in the, the food that we will consume and most likely the animals that will be hunted in the forest are more commonly like uh, deer while for other let's say diagnosis and they're more um christian nowadays uh, in the past more animism they are hunting more but we have many in the forest for example pigs but because this behavior to hunt is sometimes the hunter needed to get other animals oh. in the forest yeah. just to survive before getting the pigs for example we'll get other animals in the forest that can be taken and then eaten while waiting for yeah. so let, let's come back to forests now i just wanted to explore yeah. that with people because you mentioned and i knew that there's a a lot about uh, you know looking after the communities that then look after the forest. So what is your organization seeking to achieve from the protection of forests? It's more about we are working together. So this is something that is closer with us working rather than working to address the hunting. We are more about reforesting. So we are working with the Gunung Palung National Park and Bukit Baka, Bukit Raya 
Raya National Park. We were working with the government, uh, basically, to refresh the degraded areas. And we were working with the communities surrounding the forest to do the planting. And kind of different from other organizations is that we collect the seedlings from the, our patients because we have a clinic, healthcare clinic, so where people can access our healthcare and pay with seedlings. Among the other non-cash payments that we allow the patients to pay, the most popular payment is seedlings. Uh, but of course, they can also pay with cash or insurance, but this is also an option. Those seedlings from other seedlings that we are collected, we do the reforestation. So up That's to brilliant. now, 300 hectares that we forest, I think more than 500,000 seedlings. So planted. this is a brilliant, brilliant idea. So I'm going to just play back what you said. So the yeah. local communities can access healthcare and pay with seedlings that they have nurtured and developed into a small enough plant. And you're yep. then able to get those and then use those to reforest. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. That is how we tie up healthcare and conservation. And another thing that communities can also get discount for the healthcare services that we are provided if they protect the forest. We have regular monitoring to the villages uh, surrounding the forest. We call it eco status. So if they have green eco status, they will get higher discount than, than the communities or the villages with red color status. Wow, that's so, I must admit, when I was researching for the program and to talk to you, I hadn't picked this up. And I'm now just reflecting on the fact that you said one of your founders was a dentist. So is yes. this where the idea came, this idea of trading healthcare for other actions? Yeah, actually, the founder was asking the people, like many years ago, asking people surrounding the forest because she heard the chainsaw voices all the time and was wondering why the people here cut the trees and then she asked the communities about that and then what she got that communities at that time need apart from the daily needs yeah like for food but also for healthcare. that's why she and uh, also the dentist that so this founder uh, brought the healthcare access for the rainforest communities so that they don't need to cut the, the trees. They can pay with anything. They can pay with seedlings. They can pay with handicrafts, manure, even labor. So we provide these to help the rainforest communities to protect the forest. Wow. That's what we are expecting. And that's, that's a huge, huge idea. And uh, and, and just you, you feel that they are requiring healthcare at a level that means there's a link between the amount of healthcare they want and the amount of commitment they're willing to have for the forest. That's, that relationship is strong enough or big enough that it works. Yeah, it, it really works. I mean, like it's from 2007 up to now, we've received more than 100,000 seedlings from the patients and it's not only for treatment at the time we also open the option for saving like saving for their healthcare of oh. the family by really? giving trees and we don't accept any type of trees we make the list of the trees it's only uh, native trees that we can plant in the degraded area because we want the area to be back as the forest it used to be fantastic and how just as a matter of interest how long does it take 
them to grow one of these little seedlings? Because I guess there must be some time commitment that you feel it's worth uh, getting other people to grow them and bring them and trade that for healthcare. Otherwise, you could say, well, we'll just grow them ourselves. So tell me a little bit about that. We have several uh, schemes of collecting uh, seedlings. Yeah. So not only from the uh, patients, but patients, we give them time, four months, for example, six months, so that we give them polybag and they will come back with the seedlings after it reached 30 to 40 centimeters that we will accept. Okay. Um, and that must take some time. We understand that. Yeah, we don't rely on that only, right? So yeah. we also have several other seedling collection uh, scheme. It really depends on the type of trees that you are planted, yeah. whether it is fast growing or slow growing. But yeah, sometimes we also got the slow growing, you know, then it must be taking longer. But we understood like for the slow growing, it will be really yeah. slow. So the key thing is you're wanting to stop them cutting down the very forest that you're trying to grow and protect. And the best way to do that is to address the, the financial thing they they were spending their money on from the trees, which was healthcare. And so at least you're not just planting trees in one place and they're cutting trees down in another. You're stopping that bit of it, which is really interesting. One of that is healthcare. Second of livelihood is very important. Yeah. We also helped the loggers to transition to a more sustainable job. And for that, we support them with a program we call Chenso Buyback. So we buy their chainsaws and we support them to establish a new business so that they can stop logging, work something else that sometimes people just don't get enough courage or capital to start a new business. So we help in terms of livelihood. Yeah, because we believe that people, if they have other options, they will go for other options. It's just a matter of options. And that is it. Is it? Do you, can they earn uh, as much or more in perhaps a simpler way by these other options? I mean, is it a, a fair trade in their minds? Not always. Mm. Many times. <clears throat> um, we started this uh, 2017. And from our survey, they don't always get higher uh, income by transitioning. Many got lower. But it's not only about money, it's about health, it's yeah. about um, peace feeling of not being caught, uh, yeah. risk of being caught by the forest guards. Yeah, It's uh, more time with family, more regular income. So those other factors are matters. Wow. Uh, and, and war. So that uh, many uh, ex-loggers, we talk with them we uh, ask them how they're feeling are they feel more well-being and they said yes wow. even though the income get lower That's very because it's not only about money no now when i was in borneo and particularly when you were flying across it you could see that you know large numbers of the trees have been cut down i i guess by i'd call them industrial yeah. Companies and, and uh, people who are big landowners, you know. And so what's your feeling about the scale of the problem that comes from these independent loggers and the villagers versus, I guess, a more industrial? Or is it because you're working in a national park? You know, the industrial people can't actually get into there. So you're able to focus on the national park. Right. Our focus for now, for uh, these 15 years, is the national park. 
because it's much more easier. First is it is already said as protected, but they are still degraded some in some parts. And to help these individuals, it's not only because, yeah, they're like only few. It's not. It's actually a lot. If we are counting how many loggers times how many log or woods, the uh, trees they are cutting. So we had a survey and we asked them how many trees they uh, usually cut. It's five to 10 trees per week. Wow. So if if there are 1,000 loggers, I always say, if there are 1,000 loggers, that means we lost 500,000 yeah. 500, trees per year. Gosh. So that's a lot. That's, that's a lot. Larry, um, you on the program, I mean, if, if the national park is or forest is in a particular area, how long do you think it's going to take to replant to the level you want in that protected area? Have you got a sense of the speed to which you might succeed? We started our reforestation since 2009. So it's kind of already more than 10 years and some already green. It's uh, in some part already green. And we've seen the level maybe not as what the real forest is, of course, because the real forest is like hundreds, thousands of years. We're just 10, 12, 13 years. So what we can expect, okay, the sticky bean trees, for example, it's just like... Uh, centimeters across. I'm looking at your yeah. hand going like that. Right. How many centimeters? Less than maybe 30 centimeters. And some other very, very slow. That's why we really need to protect what is already been there. That's why we need to help the loggers not to log anymore. It's very, very, very long. We've seen already some very good impact, I would say, or uh, achievement to see animals backed in that area. That is something that we can already see in the camera trap where orangutan back, where the hornbills back. That is already something that we made it in 10 years. We made it. I need to tell people that I can see you smile. By the way, you've got the most incredible smile. I need to tell everybody that. And uh, throughout this conversation, you've been smiling, but you're super smiling now. I have seen the same thing that actually I don't think you realize that you can replant and reforest uh, these trees and that that is a very great possibility. Now, I want to finish by asking you a little bit about you because mm -hmm. you are clearly dedicating yourself to this uh, this vision, this mission. Tell me the background. How have you come to this place, to this passion to dedicate yourself in this way? What's the story behind? I lead this organization almost five years. Previously, I'm, I'm not a con conservationist. My background is public health and development studies, actually. When I work uh, in Jakarta six years ago, and then I got this almost six years ago, and I, I saw this vacancy, and then I started looking at that, uh, learning about Asri. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm from Borneo. I born in Borneo, but I don't know that there is this cool organization called Asri, which have many achievements, but I just don't know. And then I thought I'm a public health, but I'm very concerned with the forest, the remaining forest in Borneo. What you are thinking about Borneo? If other people in the world think about Borneo, that must be jungle, right? Yes. But what if you don't have any more jungle? Yeah. So I think we need really, I'm I'm a, someone who born in Borneo, but I'm not the people with conservation background. 
but with this organization everybody can work to conserve the remaining forest i applied and then i really dedicate myself to grow this organization because i think this organization is the only one i think in in indonesia that integrate healthcare and also the forest conservation so it's really a a great match for me perfect now i had another thought that was in my mind uh, having looked at all your pictures on instagram <laughs> and and i'd like to understand your view of the role of women and men in this story um you had lots of pictures of of fantastic women i you know i could see in the photographs i didn't know that it was obviously in indonesia but just talk to me about Yes, the role of women in Borneo, but in this context too. There is uh, something that I learned when I joined this organization, that this organization is really women-led. So from the beginning until now, each executive director, the chairman of the foundation, always women, the founder, both women. So all women-led organization. And we really encourage women to take part in the conservation. This is interesting. And perhaps also because it is integrated with healthcare, which sometimes more many women working in yeah. healthcare. So it's kind of like different representative. When we are in the meeting, most of the other, say, organizations, um, mostly male but when Asri present, mostly female, <laughs> so or at least half uh, from our conservation team, at least half. And we try to encourage more women and also from the community. We, we involve women uh, to be the forest guardians too. We involve women in our nursery as the also nursery workers. We engage with the wife of the loggers to support the husband in transitioning to the new job. We think of many ways involve women in the conservation. And from a society point of view, because I'm not sure I necessarily know fully and the audience won't, you know, is, is the status of women that is given both politically and by the community and by men such that you are comfortable and uh, respected and embraced by the men who may be controlling various things? What What's the dynamic in, in Borneo in that way? It depends on where in Borneo also. There are in the more remote setting it is still be very much controlled by men. But in more developing setting, I think it is more respected. I don't feel any underestimated feeling. I get more respect, actually, being women in this area. And sometimes it is just more like a new color to the system that is already been there, like most male. And when they feel that, okay, in this meeting, there are a lot of women from Astri coming. It's really like, I feel supported. Great. Uh, and, and we want to support more women to be involved Good. in the conservation. So how to, I'd like you to give two messages uh, now to people who are listening from other countries around the world. Actually, I've got three. So the first one is, what would you, and how would you describe the interest of the population in, in total to the issues of sustainability and climate change? Where would you rate it on a scale of zero to 10, perhaps? Because it's trying to show how, uh, I'm interested to see how the population is engaged versus other countries around the world. What would you score it? Just the population of Borneo, how engaged are they in climate change and sustainability, would you say? I would say still in the middle, five to six, 
let's say if we are talking about the concept, maybe it's not hurt. Actually, in daily life, we're doing it. Climate change or sustainability, people might not be really caring with the terms. But when we are talking about real thing, like, okay, we lost the forest. Um, when we got the forest more uh, shrinking, let's say it's uh, becoming other function, we will get less water. We will get less food. So that is more understood. And then people want to save the forest because this is the only source. The main source of the water in the area, fresh water, is the forest. Fantastic. And now let's say we have people listening and they also were thinking or working on protecting a forest. What message would you give them to say, you know, think about doing this so that they could succeed from everything you're doing and learning? What would be the key learning that they should embrace from what you're doing? It's very important for us not to think one issue and then just thinking that that is only that issue. I always say that conservation issue is not just about conservation. It's about livelihood, about education, healthcare. We really need to tackle those issues at the same time because people who have really the problem in the grassroots don't think about conservation or not thinking only about that. It's really many factors related and interconnected. So it's, we have to keep in mind because we are living in the same planet. What we are doing here also affect the life of people wherever. For you who listen to this podcast, it's we are all interconnected. And therefore, I wanted to finish on a high and the one you've given is a high, but hey, because of your proximity to such an important place as Borneo, it's such a critical place in the world and, and we know what's happening. Can I ask you, what's your confidence level that mm -hmm. the interconnected, that humanity is going to address this with enough power and commitment and belief that we will stop this planet increasing uh, its temperature at the rate we're seeing? What's your sense of confidence from what we are doing and we keep monitoring on uh, what we are doing we measure the impact also evaluate the programs i think we can give a good good move like if we are working together and we have commitment to save the forest i believe that this is something that we can still do but it's really need total commitment for us yeah, I believe we can still save the planet tomorrow. Well, that's a beautifully optimistic note to finish. Can I thank you for this? It's been unbelievably insightful and your passion and the smile I described is very infectious. So please keep up your fantastic work and I will we'll check in again at another time. Thank you so much for this opportunity and to voice, to bring the voice from Borneo to all around the world. Thank you so much for, for you, Jeremy. And this program is so incredible. Thank you. Well, I'm sure you picked up through everything we said, just the fantastic enthusiasm and passion of February. And as I said at the start, the absolute importance of sharing this story with other people. So please do subscribe, but also think about who you could share this podcast with and uh, the whole Saving Tomorrow's podcast amongst your LinkedIn contacts or friends or colleagues so that we can both spread the word, but more importantly, obviously, educate people to the optimism, the energy, the passion and the belief of those people actually taking action around the world to 
save this incredibly precious planet. <laughs>